Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. Harvest Lakeshore is a redeemed family who loves God and loves others. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Luke 10, 41 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Lakeshore. Um, I am uh, thankful to be able to open God's word with you. You'll need a copy of God's word, by the way. So if you don't have one, I think the outline for this and maybe a uh, app uh, would be in uh, line with where we're headed. You might want to even have a pen and paper or if you're able to take notes in the app as well. Um, we're looking at a familiar parable on this uh, parable called the Good Samaritan. And a parable is not necessarily uh, um, a true uh, the, the application of the parable is the truth. And Jesus often taught in parables, uh, and they hold massive truths for us along these lines. What does it look like? What does it look like for you and for me as kingdom citizens, followers of Christ, to actually walk in light of the fact that God has transformed our hearts? What does it look like to be kingdom citizens? And so Jesus often taught in parables with hard-hitting truths. They're not simple takeaways. These are hard-hitting, difficult-to-hear, landing on our hearts with impact, kind of like little explosions that are intended to disrupt your world and my world. So what does it look like when Jesus is actually king? This parable talks and teaches us a hard-hitting truth about love. 
And I think, did I catch it? Uh, Wes said it on uh, a new kind of, not mission statement, but identity statement for this church is a redeemed community who, who love, loves God and loves others. Is that, is that the way that goes? I love that. I think God's honored in that. And I want to unpack that last part of that, love God, yes, and love others, is the intention of this parable. So as I was praying about God's leading in what I was to speak. I was coming into uh, an existing church, you with some history, some recent events that may have been upsetting, some that you uh, maybe are, are okay with, uh, different things swirling. It's not absent on me that this is a, a stress time for any church family. And trying to think of something that would be a necessity for you to know whether you're in a spot today of hurting or confusion or angry or questions or just uncertain about the future. What's a necessity to have as a follower of God, both as a leader in the church and as congregation? And it's this, love. It's love. Now, I'm going to say some things today that are going to sound inherently to the conservative Christian mind culturally. I'm not sure about this church in particular. It's going to sound very liberal to you. And I'm going to ask you to do something right now. Would you simply, before we get into the points of this sermon, would you bow one more time and not pray for me, not pray for anything else, but pray for God and your heart to receive what he wants to teach you about love. Would you just say a quick prayer right now? God, open my eyes. God, teach me from your word now. Father, help me to be a good learner. We're all sitting at your feet now. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. And the church said, amen. amen. The power to love. Where do we get it? It's not culturally uh, a thing that we think about often. In fact, in our divisive culture, it's absolutely uh, looked at as uh, not truth. But uh, if we were to look at the Good Samaritan, that word is thrown around. I don't know if you even uh, really catch the gist. I want to unpack it. We throw it around. In fact, in the U.S., uh, a Samaritan is often attached to a name on a hospital. Several, se several states, several cities have uh, a, a hospital that's named after this parable. Um, uh, Samaritan's Purse, if you've ever done that, you know a whole a nonprofit organization that helps around is named after this parable. Uh, when I was growing up, I don't see them too much now. I grew up in Southern California, and, and I would see a lot of RVs. There's a lot of RVs that pass through here. I mean, this is like RV Central through here. I don't see stickers anymore, but I remember the Good Sam Club. I guess it's still an organization. And the whole purpose was uh, if you're traveling and someone was stranded, a good Sam would stop by and would help, much like what uh, the parable that Jesus is teaching. Now, is there still a good Sam, good Samaritan club? Are any RVers? No one knows. See, I'm, I'm lost on that too. Appreciate your help. 
I want to teach us, I want to do two things in today's sermon. Number one is this, I want to unpack this contextually. And that's all of point one. And then point two is, and then more quickly, I want to give us some takeaways that we can actually walk out of here with today and go, I need that in my life. I'm going to do this thing this week. And so number one is, is uh, the context. You cannot interpret this parable or any parable or God's word separate from the context. Be very careful not to do that. We like to rip scripture and put it on our coffee mugs to somehow encourage our hearts that is separate from the context. And by that, there's been a lot of heresy and false teaching, even in the church today, that is not true to God's word. I want to give you a glimpse into the context of this parable And in that, pull and extract some teaching that Jesus was having for the original hearers in the place that he was giving this. So when I say context, you got to know, and by the way, if you go to small group, uh, it's never a good idea to go around in the group and go, well, what does this scripture mean to you? Please don't do that. I have one view, you have another view, and somehow we're doing it. That is liberalism. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not correct interpretation of Scripture either. The Bible has a context. There's a historical context that the Bible was written in. Uh, This is almost 2,000 years old. And so there's a context in history, time, and space, and humanity that is important to know in interpreting, just like you would interpret any piece of literature. This is not unimportant. There's a cultural background. Uh, Jesus was inserting himself. In fact, if you miss the cultural background of this parable, you miss the parable. This is not a parable of just easy, like, hey, just... Love those who you come across and help people change a tire. That was not what Jesus was teaching. And I want to show you that today. There's a geographical aspect to the context. Uh, time and place. There's a linguistic. I'll try and pull some of that out. There's a, a visual like often Jesus would either write in the sand or he was against a backdrop or the temple was in the background and he had talk about worship, giving an actual visual, visual aid to his parables or teaching. There's a literary context as well. By the way, if you're interested in knowing uh, how to read your Bible, uh, this seems to be in today's time always a, a, a thing that is, seems to be absent. Uh, there's a great book out called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's been out for a number of years uh, by uh, Fee and Stewart, a great Great read. I commend that. It's um, not written at, at a level that is not anyone in the room can, can read this and get it. And um, so you have Luke 10 open in, in your laps. Do you have Luke 10, church? Amen. You, you're with me this morning? Okay, so it's okay to talk back. I don't know if that's normal here or not, but I appreciate only loving talk back. We're talking about love. Only loving responses, please. And, but here, here it is. Here's number one, and if you're taking notes, I, I commend this to you. Follow God's command to love. You cannot read this parable and come away with this uh, lack of understanding about his command when he says, you go and do likewise, straight up command uh, from Jesus Christ, go and do likewise. So first off, we're we're called to follow God's command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, if you want your best life now, there's a straight up command. If your heart has been beautifully broken by the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ, love, love. Now, it requires a little unpacking in our culture and by biblical context today, um, 
Uh, it's never okay to ask who's my neighbor. Because instantly, some of the more critical, truth-bent people are, are going to be like, well, who's my neighbor? And we want to know A plus B, and I'll just do C. If this is a command, i got to do this a step far away from that interpretation. In fact, Jesus is condemning the lawyer here for asking that question. I'll show you that in just a minute. So if you're writing a definition down for love, by the way, let me give you letter A. I have two points, but a lot of subpoints underneath. I just snuck them in so it looked like a shorter sermon than it really is. <laughs> letter A is this. I will ask the right question. Love always asks the right question. I've already told you the wrong question is, who's my neighbor? So here, here's, here's this definition of love. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. The willing, not guilted into, not have to because this is my responsibility, not duty, the willing self-sacrifice that is for the good of another person. That's love. That's love. By the way, it's not, it, you can't demand it. It doesn't demand love, never demands reciprocation. That's common today. You give and I'll get, and now you give and I'll get, and, and I'll get, and vice versa, and that's the somehow makes a good. No, 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 no. That doesn't make a good marriage. It doesn't make. It's not an example of God's love. It does not demand reciprocation. Or get this: that the person being loved is particularly deserving. If we're going to love like God's love, can we all admit that He loved us while we were still sinners, enemies of God? So God's love. And subsequently, kingdom love does not demand that the recipient of said love is deserving. It's where we get the word grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. Still tracking with me, church? Still tracking? A lot of teaching on the front end of this, I know. Okay, so let's talk about why this is, we're supposed to ask the right question, and this was the wrong question. First of all, it was the wrong motive to the question. Did you see in verse 25? Look at it with me in your copy of God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to do what? What was the motive from God's word? Test. To put him to the test. Like, you're not sneaking one by Jesus. He knows the heart. And here, this lawyer stood up in front of this group of other people that he's seeking to look good in front of, and he says, uh, uh, hey, I, I have um, uh, a desire to ask you a question, but the whole motive in his heart behind that was to put him to the test. That was his goal. And he asked this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want to point out something that's contextual here that you don't get just by reading this parable in a, a capsule. The word test here that is used is very intentional. In fact, this word test is exactly the word that Jesus' followers should seek to avoid doing. What do I mean by that? Do you know that this is the same word translated temptation in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Same word. Do you know that this is the same word that when Jesus was taken to the wilderness by the Spirit and Satan shows up and tests him? Same word. Earlier in Luke. 
And part of our problem in today's culture is we read little snapshots of God's word. And if you were to sit down and read Luke in one sitting, if, if you had the time and space and capacity to do that, I commend it. You'll connect some of these words. This is the same word used by Satan. And so we're to infer from that that here the lawyer is not just doing lawyer work. The lawyer is actually doing Satan's work. He's testing Jesus. It's the wrong motive. It's also the wrong question. Teacher, what shall I do? If you have the capacity, you need to circle that. It's not clear just by a passive reading of the text. What should I do to inherit the word, the, inherit eternal life? The word do in the Greek, and this isn't important to remember, it's just aorist participle. I want you to know I did some homework. It's a tense that suggests a single, limited, one-time action. Get what the lawyer is asking Jesus. Jesus, I think you have eternal life available Give me the one-time singular action that I have to do to get that so that I know that I have the insurance plan for eternity but don't have to change anything about my life now. Well, Jesus responds. He just simply, you have answered correctly. He says, love the neighbor as yourself and You've answered this correctly. Jesus says, do this. Now this, he changes it. This do and do this from Jesus is an imperative indicative, meaning an ongoing relationship. Do you see the contrast? Just give me a head shake if you see the contrast. And what I'm... Now, I got to tell you also that in the gospel of Luke, what is normally thought of as honorable positions are not. So when we see, anytime you see a teacher, anytime you see a lawyer, which are esteemed positions in Jesus' day, in Luke, Luke kind of inverts all of that, and they're always made negative examples of because of their pride and arrogance. Just one of a, a Lucanism that is pretty common. In fact, this lawyer, by the way, uh, I haven't failed to tell you that this is not a civil or criminal lawyer. This is a, a biblical scholar, an Old Testament, particularly the Torah. And this lawyer, one who is supposed to be following God's word, is actually taking on the devil's role. And this is the lawyer uh, who, who um, wants just an A plus B to secure his future but in Luke, all throughout Luke, the only way that anyone has ever come to Christ in the entirety of the gospel of Luke is not recognizing Jesus as teacher, but Jesus as Kyrios, which is Lord. That's all throughout Luke. I just gave you a lot there. You don't need to remember any of that other than this. He's asking the wrong question. So I said Jesus changes the do from a single one-time limited action to an ongoing relationship, meaning live this, be this, live now, not just worried about eternity and this security plan and insurance that you think I provide. And, and the lawyer was thinking, hey, let me, let me bring this to us today. 
So I'm just not teaching from history standpoint, but bringing to us. It's the equivalent of someone coming to church and thinking, listen, I went to church today, so somehow God's impressed or happy with me. My, my eternity is secure. A plus B, but it doesn't equal C. You tracking? I, 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 I'm coming to church, and because I'm guilty a little bit, I'm going to put something in the gift giving. Where, where, where do you guys give here? Where do you, do you have boxes in the back or something? Okay, so the boxes in the back, and, and, and just give, and, and that's God's going to be happy, and somehow that will secure my future. It's religionism instead of relationship with God. Jesus is pushing back against that. It assumes that eternal life is a commodity to be earned rather than a free gift that is given. Jesus changes and says, no, do this. It's not an action to do, but it's something to be. It's, it's a difference. It's, it's a being. It's, it's not what you do. It's who you are. Now, I love that Jesus uses a Socratic method here by asking this question. He says, what is written? And then get this, underline this if you can. How do you, what's it say? Look at it. This is important to the, to the interpretation of the text. How do you what? Read it. Jesus is actually helping this guy he, so the guy thinks, in his popularity and esteem with the crowd that is there. What do I mean by that? Uh, Jesus lived in a predominantly illiterate culture. Most people were farmers of some kind or they had a jobs of some kind, but not many people read. And one of the things why teachers and lawyers were esteemed is that they were literate and could read God's word, and they taught the others, so most of it was orally transferred. God's word wasn't like everyone had a copy of the scroll, and we open Isaiah, and we get the Old Testament. It wasn't like that in Jesus' day. You had to go to a synagogue or to the temple. So when he's saying, how do you read it, instantly you can kind of go, the, the lawyer went, yeah, I read. And he puffs his chest out a little bit, and people go, oh, yeah, he's a lawyer. The lawyer responds, and I love this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Leviticus 19, mushed together, all in verse 27. He responds, love God with, and he goes through all the alls. By the way, love of God is the foundation for all of life, which is the intention, and he's correct in his response. And, and, and the way it works, by the way, even in the Old Testament, it's not just a hearing thing, it's a doing thing. Okay, so it's the wrong motive, it's the, the wrong question, it's the wrong kind of question also. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? May I suggest to you that this lawyer, his concern with self-justification was based on his pride. He's more interested in the legal requirements and ignores the command to love the stranger. Let me put it in common day language. He's more concerned with who wasn't his neighbor that he could exempt from his love rather than following the clear teaching to go and do likewise. Jesus, you're 
Go and do likewise is too broad. There's too many people. Tell me who and tell me who not, most importantly, so I can avoid them. I wrote down in my notes, this parable is not about who is my neighbor, but about being a neighbor. Anytime that you start to go down the road of, do they deserve my love? You've missed it. From the point here that he wants to do, he wants to have this minimum life with God to secure his eternity. But the problem is love always avoids the minimum. Always avoids the minimum. Let me ask you a second. Look this way. Where are you avoiding the maximum that love calls and are doing the minimum requirements in concern with your heart for God? Where in your relationship with others are you doing the minimum that isn't loving? Now, let me unpack this a little bit. I remember uh, my wife and I have been married now almost 30 years. You're supposed to go, ooh, good job, Christy, on that one. Yeah, thanks. Was that a boo? No, ooh. <laughs> I said ooh, not boo. 30 years, that's a long time. And I don't remember exactly what year it was, but in uh, uh, early career stage, um, there was a time when I was gone through the week. I was working probably 80, 90 hours, it seemed like a week, never home. I, in fact, we had our second child at this stage. I literally have no recollection from the six-month period after my son was born. I don't remember a thing from that. I was just all work. And I was busy and calendaring and calendaring and calendaring and calendaring. And I remember that I, 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 I either heard a, someone talk about dating their wife. So like, I haven't dated my wife in a long time. I better put that on the calendar. Well, she saw on my calendar date night with Christy. Well, we hadn't previously discussed anything about calendaring this, but what was on my calendar was all work stuff, and then I snuck in date night with Christy, interpreted to her heart was, I'm just one of the many appointments for Doug. May I suggest to you, I, even my failed attempt at loving wasn't loving because I wasn't focused on her. May I suggest to you that my wife rightfully so, before God, uh, should never be in second place to another humanoid ever. She's the first human that I'm called to on the face of this planet. Love you, love her more. Does that make sense? You tracking with me still? So what I did by putting a calendar, now I'm not against calendaring dates. We've gotten through that. She knows date night now. It fosters love in her heart. She's not something I sneak in. But listen, part of it was I wanted A plus B. I'm going to sneak in a day night and still have my heart that's far from intentional with loving her like she deserves. And somehow that's going to put some balm and salve on real love. And she wasn't standing for it. Thank you, God. Instead of a relationship, I was hoping, what's the one thing I can do to make my marriage better? And somehow A plus B never got me C, and it doesn't get you C with God either. He's saying this is a lifestyle. So you know what, you know what I incorporate now? And sometimes I have to remind myself, she just knows because I'm forgetful. We touch base through the day. 
I'll send her a text. Hey, hope you're doing good. Can't wait to see you tonight. Why? It's not something that I have to schedule when she has my heart. Now, please hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not. Don't hear what I'm not saying either. Schedules are fine. Some of you need to step up and start getting some date nights on the calendar, right? But my point is I could not have her think I, she has my heart with just one scheduled thing. I was trying to do the minimum. It's like the husband who asked me in counseling, hey, how much time do I have to spend with my wife so that she knows I love her? Really? How am I supposed to know? I'm not married to her, was my response. I don't know how much time is there that you need to spend with her. You figure, it's, it's your relationship. Every relationship is a little different. Here, here's, here, here's, here's also, where in your relationship are you doing the minimum? And where in your relationship with God are you doing the minimum? Oh, this is sneaky. How much God do I have to give? God, what, how, I actually think that's a good question that you should ask. How much do I have to give? How long do I have to pray? How much Bible do I actually have to read to count it as a quiet time or devotional time with God? I, I don't know. What do I have to do in order for God to fix this problem in my life, be careful, A plus B. Wrong questions. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And when we seek to do the minimum, we're definitely not doing that. Can you call your love for God today, right now, Loving him with all your heart. Then there's this. I won't limit who I love. It says letter B. I won't limit who I love. There's a historical context that affects the cultural background to this parable in a massive, massive way. Now, I grew up in Southern California. Anyone else grow up um, where there were, um, I, I don't know that Michigan has any, the Store called Pet Boys. It's an automotive store. Anyone know what I'm talking about on that? Anyone? Anyone? Good. Like 10 of you. This will be a great illustration for sure. <laughs> Pet Boys growing up had the most annoying commercial to me. It's an automotive store. You can go pull your car in, get it fixed. I, I think there's like five in all of Michigan, but there's a lot out west. And so I grew up in Southern California, and I remember the Pet Boys ads and the commercials, and they had a silly little jingle, and something about this Pet Boys ad uh, always stuck in my mind that if you grew up there, there were three cartoon figures associated with that chain. And it was Manny, Moe, and no one knows. See, it's Jack. Manny, Moe, and Jack, the Pet Boys, okay? And, and they made this annoying little jingle that went with it. I can still hear it. I'm not going to bless you with my singing voice and give you that jingle today. But the point is, there's a reason why they chose Manny, Moe, and Jack. And the, the historical background that affects the cultural background of this parable is, is that there's, uh, let, let me keep going with this triplet kind of thing. There's a tradition in storytelling that Jesus uses often in his parables, and it is this parable tradition 
triplet thing that's used actually if you've ever had a writing class or even a speaking class, you know the power of three. That's why often pastors, don't use this sermon as an example, pastors will have three points and a poem and call it good. Why? We, for some reason in our hearts and minds, remember triplets. It's the Father, Son, and... You should get this church. You should get this one. (laughs) Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's why in literature there is uh, Goldilocks and the three bears. There is the three little pigs. There's the three musketeers. There's the, it's the three magi who brought gold, frankincense, and... None of you have used the word myrrh in the last year, except maybe last Christmas when it was read. You probably have none of it in your house. Most probably don't even know what it is. And yet you all remember gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the power of three, right? So Jesus is doing that here. And you got to know this from the text because uh, everyone would have known the answer. Hey, there's a priest, a Levite, And what was commonly known from the oldest down to the youngest that could talk, it was a priest, Levite, and an Israelite. That was the way it always went, historically. So we come to this parable, and Jesus goes, there's a priest. Yes, there's a Levite. Yes, and everyone knew what was coming next, but Jesus upsets that. It's not a priest. It's not a Levite. Only, and it's not an Israelite, it's a Samaritan. When he drops the bomb, it's like the air sucked out of the space. (gasps) By the way, uh, priest, Levite, Israelite, all over the Old Testament, on repeat in the Old Testament. Jesus is hijacking the common knowledge and common culture with this idea of his supernatural love. In fact, I believe in this time and space that was comfortable up to this point that at this moment the air sucks out and you could hear a pin drop. Jesus is about to get booed off stage. Samaritan? We don't have, I'm going to try and convey it to our culture. In essence, what Jesus is saying is unthinkable to the crowd to whom he's saying it. Unthinkable. He's saying love your enemy, to willingly self-sacrifice for your enemy. Give me a couple minutes to unpack how the Samaritans historically became the enemies of the Israelites. Just know this, in Luke 6, 27, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good, those, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those with whom you expect to receive, 
What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Uh, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. My question is, from the Good Samaritan parable, are you practicing loving your enemies? If so, where? It's distinctly kingdom-minded and Christ-like. Here's the background of this old, century-old conflict. I have a, a diagram kind of of it. If you remember back to the history of Israel... The kingdom of Israel really at its genesis uh, started with King Saul, three kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. That encompassed the golden era of the nation of Israel. Solomon and his sons kind of went AWOL from following God. The kingdom splits. There's the Israel, which is the northern kingdom. There's Judah, which is the southern kingdom. By the way, they had two different places of worship in, in uh, uh, Samaria. That's Israel. Uh, uh, this where we're getting Samaritan come. I'm extrapolating this out. From Samaria, uh, there was the capital of, uh, of worship there called Mount Gerizim, and that's where they worshiped. In the southern kingdom, it was Jerusalem, it was Mount Zion. So there are two separate captivities. You'll see this all throughout the Old Testament, especially in, through the minor prophets. And then you have Assyria, uh, who takes over Israel uh, about 722 B.C., puts them into captivity. You have Jerusalem uh, and Judah, the southern kingdom, that's taken over by Babylon, that happens in around 597 B.C. By the way, both of those kingdoms then are taken over by the Persian Empire in 539 B.C. Uh, so what were two separate nations? These come together. I'm giving you like an overview of the Old Testament in like five minutes or less here. Okay, keep track. And this is all important as you interpret God's word. And so Persia takes this over. Uh, both kingdoms come together. Persia is a massive empire. And um, uh, then, uh, by the way, in, in, it's in Persia that interestingly what um, God's word says if think a biblical context Ezra Nehemiah um, in fact in 2nd Kings 17 verse 24 God's word says this and the king of Assyria um, brought people from Babylon uh, Kata Ava Hamath uh, Seraphim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. The point of that is that during the Persian Empire, they had a little different mindset. They would just go in and repopulate a land with the original people there and would intermarry and become greater than the people that originally lived there. That happened in the case of Israel. So fast forward a little bit, and when uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the people want to build the wall, it was or, or, and the temple, it was the Samaritans, if you remember back to Ezra chapter 4, where they offered to help build the temple, and the Israelites were like, no, 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 you're intermarried, you're not clean, you're not building the temple, and they wouldn't let them. So they actually became the enemies and pushed back against rebuilding the temple. And in the second century BC, the, the Israelites called on the Samaritans for help. If you remember the story from history, Antiochus Epiphanes, who came in and desecrated the temple, slaughtered pigs in the temple, and, and uh, really uh, violated a lot of uh, Judaism's laws. Uh, the Samaritans were asked for help, and they're like, nope, you didn't let us build, help us build this temple. We're not helping you. No, no, no. So they let it be decimated. 
So that's, the, that's two centuries before Christ. Uh, the S Samaritans meant worshipped on Mount Gerizim, not on Zion, leading all the way a couple hundred years forward to Jesus' day. By the way, time doesn't heal wounds. Love does, but time does not. And John 8, 48, in Jesus' day, here's the spiritual temperature towards Samaritans. The Jews answered him, speaking to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Get the picture. To be a Samaritan was the equivalent of being demonic. They're equating demon possession with being a Samaritan. Jesus comes right against that. It's not a priest, Levite, and Israelite. It's priest, Levite, Samaritan, and saying, love your enemy. And when Jesus introduces the Samaritan, it's almost as if there's no category for love for them. They're not worthy of love. They were the enemies. It would be the equivalent of us. Can I bring it home today a little bit? Just by some practical application, it would be like us saying, love the Hamas leader. Parables are uncomfortable. It's much easier, much cleaner to put people in categories, is it not? Where they're either in, they're out. We do this all the time. They don't deserve my love if... We wouldn't be as blunt and bold to say it that way, but in our actions, they, we would speak that way. Can I run a little test with you, church? Hopefully I don't get booed off stage. Don't answer out loud, please. Just fill in the blank with the first word that pops to your mind. Quietly, privately, internal talk now only. All Democrats are. All Republicans are. All Muslims are. All LGBTQ are. All NRA members are. And Jesus here in this parable is telling us what we don't want to hear. Now, I'm not saying we need blanket tolerance. It's not watering down of biblical principles or morals or what brings freedom. And what he's saying is the foot that we lead with as we encounter other people is a recognition of our commonality, not our exclusivity. Love your neighbor as yourself, and love will never ask, who's my neighbor? It means seeing and recognizing the commonalities in others before we see the differences. See, we're all standing in the uh, same need of our hearts being transformed by the beauty and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means see a human in need of help before seeing an interruption in your travel plans. 
It means seeing a human in need of God's love and forgiveness and grace, just like me, just like you, just like the person who looks differently than us, that has different political views than I hold, has different ideas about church than I hold. Love your neighbor. I'm simply asking, what do you have in your heart toward others that aren't like you, that don't think the same? Do you actually have an example of you following the command of Jesus to love your enemy? If so, where? And then there's this, letter C, quickly, I got to keep moving, is this. uh, 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 I won't limit when I love. And I want us to give us a little bit of the geographical context because there's all kinds of assumptions about why the priest and the Levite actually didn't stop to help. And if you read a lot of the commentaries, just wacko kind of thoughts on some of this, assumptions at best, where these these, uh, scholars think, well, for sure uh, the priest was clean and and he couldn't touch a person that was bloodied in the ditch and different things. Well, that's nonsense. He was coming down. He had already finished his temple duty, if that was his duty, and he was coming down the road, not up the road. So he was done with that, and he was totally fine to be able to help and assist a person. He was using it as an excuse because he was a Samaritan. Now, the fact is that we can have all kinds of thoughts about that, and we can even disagree on that, but the reality is Jesus doesn't simply tell us why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. My gut is that they were afraid. The road to Jericho uh, was like stopping in one of the most dangerous parts of an inner city. Like Southside Chicago or Compton in Los Angeles or maybe East Harlem if you're from New York. And the Jericho Road is where, listen, David fled from Absalom. It's where King Zedekiah fled from the Chaldean pursuers. It's an 18-mile descent from Jerusalem at 2,500 feet above sea level to Jericho, which is 825 feet below sea level, and it was extraordinarily dangerous. So the best explanation is that they were concerned about what would happen to them, and they were only focused on themselves because it would be dangerous. And here's the point. Jesus is saying, if love is the willing self-sacrifice, it means that during times that would normally be a concern of safety for me, love pushes me out of my comfort zone of what is safe and pushes me toward helping other people. Love does that. Love isn't limited because it's an interruption. Love always calls for self-sacrifice. Letter D in your notes, I won't limit how much I love. Samaritan's love for the injured man is extensively shocking. It goes from, and by scholars, there's either, you know, two denarii uh, is from either two weeks or two months, depending on who you read historically, of lodging. He then tells the innkeeper, spend whatever you want. Seriously? This is love? Do you have love like that? Even in your own family, in this church, do you have love like that? I have one of my friends in Traverse City, one of the founding elders of the church. It's about four or five weeks in, he comes to me and he says, Doug, you're in a new place, new city, new home. 
starting a new church. This was 10 years ago. And he goes, I want you to know, whatever I have is yours. My house is open to you if you need a spot to stay. My truck is available. I borrowed his trailer on repeat. I have his bow for archery season. He just bought a boat that I'm going to use. Praise God. Open-handed. He's loving me. He's loving me. I won't limit how much I love. What's amazing and ex- extensively shocking to me is, can you imagine as a parent, if you, how many of you have any teenage kids? Any, or you've gone through raising teenage kids? Good, good, good. Okay, so here, here's, imagine this. Your teenage daughter of 15 years, you hand her the family credit card and go, go to the mall, spend whatever you want. That's an extraordinarily poor idea. Bad idea to do. That's what this guy does, but love does that in this case with this guy who is hurt. He goes to the innkeeper in a bad part of town. So think of the most sketchy area. I don't don't even know this area at all, but think of the sketchiest part if there is one. Think of it and go to the hotel in the center of that area. Give them your credit card. Put someone, someone there that needs some help and go, hey, that's my tab. They can spend whatever they want. It's risky. He's not limiting how much he loves. Uh, grammatically, I want to I point out something here. Uh, it's, it's not easy to see in the text from a grammatical linguistic context, but there's 10 verbs in the Greek, and five of those are connected with some level of personal touch between the Samaritan and this injured man. The, 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 the guy is helping him. What I mean by that is on repeat in the Greek, you can't read it without going, man, this guy was not trying to love from a distance. It's touch, 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 touch. He's up close and personal. That means you cannot, cannot, Christian, hear me. You cannot love others like Jesus calls us to from a distance. It requires messiness and up close. Touch, 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 touch. So, lastly, let me wrap this up, because here's all a point two, quick style. How do I find the power to obey the command to love? This is great, Pastor Doug. I, I see God's command to love, how it's, not, it's without limits, and it doesn't, it's, it's self-sacrificing. I love that. It's, I'm not limiting the who, the when, or the how much. How do I do this? I want us to be aware of the impossibility of this command. Three quick things, and we're closing. Letter A is this. I see my failure of the command. You'll never love unless you see your personal failure and inability to actually follow the command. All all the parables of Jesus Christ actually have a strong salvation message. And salvation comes when we recognize our personal failure to be able to live up to the simple, straightforward commands of God's laws. We we have a holy God. He is separate and other, and he's created a, a path for us to walk as humans. And every one of us has strayed from God's plan, and we're in desperate need of a Savior. We cannot work ourselves to get back into God's good graces. We can never get there enough. We're riddled with sin. Have you admitted that? 
We can't be good enough, even though we want to be good enough. But actual freedom of salvation and walk with God is, is a part. The first step is admitting our, our need and dependence on God to make us good, to make us something that we are not. We need him to make us perfect, sinless, because we failed every one of us to follow God's law. That's why in Romans chapter 10, verse 7, or, or chapter 7, verse 10, the apostle Paul says this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What's he saying? He said, when I saw the law of God, it killed me. There's no way I can live up to this level of love. It's an impossibility. You won't love your spouse like Jesus called you to love her or him. It killed me. And my question is, have you admitted your own failure before God? And at this point, it's humility that's needed. Biblically, it's termed repentance. Not a once and done thing in the life of a believer, but an ongoing heart bent to be soft and, and, and tender to, to God's leading in his commands. Have you admitted your own failure? Or oh, pride fights so hard against admitting that. And then letter B, I've settled God's love for me. Have you seen and received God's love for you? Where, where you've seen the beauty of the cross, where you've gone yes to God. I failed, but Jesus Christ never failed. He was perfect. And you actually are a recipient of God's love for you. This is why, by the way, in Romans 5, 6, get this, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the kind of love he's talking about that we should have for others. Or, or, or Romans 5, 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. So, Admitting our failure to live up to God's law, recognizing and receiving and settling God's love for me personally. And then how, how do I have the power? It's this. And Christian, if you've walked with God, you say, Pastor Doug, I've done both of those things. I've admitted and I'm admitting my need of Christ today. It's not a once and done in the past. I need him to love like this today. And you're in that. Here's this. Are you living in awe of God? Because you'll, you'll forget to love like Jesus Christ commands unless you're constantly reminded and your mind and soul are bombarded with the truth of how much God loved you as an enemy of his. What, what do I mean? Are, are, what do I mean by in awe of God? Are you spending the time relationally necessary to live with a continual soul that's overwhelmed with the beauty of the gospel? of God's sacrifice to you. That's why the songs that we sang are so important and critical to our theology. Songs about his grace, his sacrifice, his holiness, so that we can be in awe of him. I, I get this every now and then, so uh, I live in awe of God. Well, how long will that take? Yes. How long? I don't know. But if you first don't have that, your attempts to love others will then be motivated only by guilt or pride instead of the love of Jesus Christ that the gospel gives and commands for us as Christians. By the way, this type of love is the first step in any interpersonal relationship, whether inside or outside the church. Are you loving like Christ called us? love. Will you pray with me? Father, 
God, I thank you that you provide a savior and a solution to our sin problem. His name is Jesus Christ. And God, I'm so thankful that being a Christian means that I, I was the one lying in the road. And Jesus was the one who gave himself and paid my debt completely and gave me a place in a, to stay and to heal and to grow and to live. And God, our only, our only hope to be able to love like you loved us is to have our heart wrecked in beautiful ways by the gospel. And you tell us, Jesus, to simply go and do likewise. God, each one of us will encounter, not tomorrow, but today, people who need to be loved like this. And so God, help us love those that are different or difficult or undeserving of our love. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to love sacrificially like you loved me. God, help, help me to spend whatever time, help us to spend whatever time is necessary to have our hearts be in a, a consistent awe, amazement of your love for me. And only then will we have the peace and assurance that our ways are actually following yours. God, I pray for this church that you would allow it to be a place where people are known and loved. It's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Thank you again for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. If you have found this content helpful, consider sharing the episode with friends or leave us a rating and review. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. You are loved.